This is the Professional Hypnotherapist Podcast, a production of the European Association of Professional Hypnotherapists. That's eaph.ie. And a very warm welcome to you to this edition of the Professional Hypnotherapist Podcast. I'm your host, Aidan Noon. Without a shadow of a doubt, Joe Griffin is a pioneer in the world of psychotherapy. Joe is co-founder of the Human Given School of Psychotherapy and author and co-author of several best-selling books on mental health. Joe's new book, is very comprehensive, covering areas as diverse as health, spirituality, philosophy, and indeed why the universe exists. Discover why it's important to have our human needs met. Learn about the APET model. Learn how a mystical experience has changed Joe's life. Get answers to life's most important questions, like who am I? What happens after death? Does life have meaning? Do we have free will? Why does evil exist? And how all of this connects up with saving the planet. From mystical experiences to human consciousness. What is a universal human being? Are human beings necessary for the existence and creation of the universe? All on today's podcast. Joe Griffin, thank you so much for joining me today on the Professional Hypnotherapist podcast. Now, I know there are many of our members and indeed listeners throughout the world will be only too delighted to hear uh, what you have to say and will learn so much today from, from this experience. Thank you so much again for being with me. Um, pleasure, Aidan. Delighted to be here. Now, Joe Griffin, you're you're co-founder of the Human Given School of Psychotherapy and the author and co-author of several best-selling books on mental health. Now, your new book is very comprehensive, covering areas as diverse as mental health, spirituality, philosophy, and indeed why the universe even exists. But before we get into that, Joe, I'd like to ask you, about a statement on the Human Givens website, and I quote, It is the very forces that are driving the mental health crisis that are driving the environmental crisis. Can you develop that and explain that for us, please? Yes, I'd be delighted to, Aidan. Everything in this universe is subject to decay. Uh, This is the second law of thermodynamics. It says all order tends to disorder. So everything mm-hmm. is breaking up and becoming decayed. And this is more so when it comes to living things. Living things, because of their complexity, tend to break down and die very, very quickly. And because mm-hmm. of that, nature has evolved a guidance system, DNA system, etc., inside living things to guide mm-hmm. them to get certain forms of nutriment from their environment. And the creature can use that nutriment to keep rebuilding its order. 
And so long as it gets the nutriment it needs, it's in perfect health. Now, human beings are very, very complex beings indeed. And we have not just physical nutriment that we need, such as food and water, clothing and heat. We also have emotional nutriment that we need. And when we don't get the physical and emotional nutriment that we need in balance, we become disordered, i.e. we become ill physically or mentally. We become mm -hmm. ill. And the very systems in society and in organizations and in companies that prevent people from getting their physical and emotional needs met in balance, those very same systems, because they're so unbalanced, they're unbalancing the people that work for them, but they're also unbalancing the environment. And they are destroying the environment just as they're damaging the mental health of people working in these unbalanced organizations and systems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now that's, that's, uh, so uh, you're saying that you know, we are, by the imbalance, just to sort of recap, if I, if I may do so in a very bad way, uh, that that because we're imbalanced, that that imbalance that we have is affecting the environment. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We have certain needs, you see, and when those needs uh -huh. are not met in balance, we become disordered creatures, which means we relate to the environment in a disordered way. So, for example, ah. briefly, briefly, the needs that we have to get met as human beings. Yes. We need security to feel safe and to be able to secure our physical needs like food, water. We have a need yeah. for control to have a say in things. We have a need for status to be respected. Yes. We also have a need for privacy, space on our own to think our own thoughts, to be our, our own selves and to be uh -huh. in touch with ourselves. Now, these okay. are basically I would regard as our lower needs. We share, we share these needs with most animals, but then we've got higher order needs, and there are three of those. One of them is to be a team player. Now, a team player, Aidan, is somebody who's working with colleagues, whether it's the family team or whether it's a work team, but we, they have each other's backs. We're looking out for each other. We're protecting each other. We're working together. And we would need to be in, to be in teams like that. We would need for lifelong learning. When, once we stop learning, the brain becomes disordered and all kinds of things like dementia can sit in. So we mm -hmm. need in lifelong learning. And finally, we need to have a purpose, something more important than ourselves. Mm -hmm. Now, the purpose that we have, Aidan, needs to be something that doesn't steal other people's needs and damage other people. So that's where mm -hmm. teamwork comes in. Because if we're in teamwork, we're not damaging the other members of the team. So we have to realize that if we're getting these needs met, the security, control, and status, the privacy, and we're getting the teamwork, the learning, and purpose met, we will take care of the environment because we'll see the environmental needs. We'll see the needs of other people. And... We won't be undermining them. But when we do not see other people's needs and we don't and we undermine them, we undermine those people's mental health and we relate to the environment in an unhealthy way. Let me mm -hmm. just give you a, a, a very topical example. Okay. There's a war going on in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Now, all wars, like all mental illness, are caused by people's needs not being met in. So if you look at the war in Ukraine, uh, Putin, the leader, of, the leader of Russia, had a yeah. need for security, a need for status. He thought he had an agreement with NATO and, 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 the, and the European countries in America that they would not move nu nuclear weapons up to his border. And yeah. he thought he had that agreement. And when they did move those things up to his border, that mm -hmm. impinged his need for security. 
he also felt disrespected. So his status, he felt like he was being treated like a nobody. Mm. So his need for status, his need for security for himself and for his country were being undermined. And because of the inattention to this by, by world leaders, we put him into a pathological state where he attacked Ukraine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, the war in Ukraine can be justified upon any level, but all of these things are the result of people's needs not being met. Mm-hmm. And, and may, may I ask you? Needs. Sorry, sorry, sorry beg, your pardon, beg your pardon. Where does, uh, if I introduce the, 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 the concept of selfishness, where does that come into play? Now, that's very interesting. So, I put the needs in a hierarchy, on, on a ladder, mm. so to speak. Security, control, and status on their bottom three rungs. And they are our ego. Yes. And selfishness and addiction are when we pursue one need at the expense of others. So mm. if we focus on our security and we to the, the exclusion of other people's needs being teamwork, learning, and purpose, that selfishness then causes us to be dysfunctional and causes other people to become dysfunctional. So mm-hmm. selfishness is the, is the result. It's a form of addiction. It's the result of focusing excessively on certain needs usually our most basic needs like security, control, and status to the expense of other people. That's what so it's, so it's like a dopamine hit then? Oh, yes, absolutely. We become addicted to those hits. And we <laughs> I'm, I'm totally don't care about other people because to care about other people, you have to have the higher needs activated for teamwork, learning, and purpose. Mm. And the thing is, Aidan, those higher needs give us access to higher intelligence. Mm. Mm. Excellent. Intelligence. Yeah. When, when we're in those lower needs, we are stupid. We only see what we want, not what other people's needs are. Mm, yeah. So, Joe, are you saying that the you know that the cause of all mel- mental illness is not getting our needs met? Absolutely, Aidan. Without exception, I don't care what the mental illness—a psychotic mental illness, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder. Whatever the mental illness, its cause is that we're not getting our needs met and balanced. If we were, we would be perfect specimens that nature intended us to be. Now, mm-hmm. there are three reasons why we might not be getting those needs met, and these three reasons are the cause of all mental illness. Firstly, we may be in a toxic environment where the emotional nutriment that we need is not possible. Many people are working in toxic companies where mm-hmm. they're not given the proper control and status, where they're not part of teamwork, where they're not learning, and they become mentally ill. The environment is toxic. And if you can't change that environment, or it could be a toxic marriage, for example, or a relationship, we have to, as health practitioners, we have to get these people out of the toxic environment. It's not that they're sick, it's the environment is sick. Yeah. So a, a, a toxic environment is one cause of mental illness. Uh, another cause of mental illness is that although we have needs, there are skills involved in getting those needs met. Mm. And not everybody has developed those skills, particularly, say, if they're in the spectrum or something like that. They may not yeah. actually know how to conduct conversations. They may not know, understand the give and take in relationships. They may not be able to read into personal language. So they may be missing certain communication skills and life skills. And although they would love to have friends and get needs met, they don't have the skills. So in that case, the job of a health practitioner is to teach the missing skills. And the third reason why people become mentally ill is that their guidance system has become internally damaged. The most common cause of this would be trauma. But it could be a head injury, it could be dementia, you know, dementia, whatever. But Mm -hmm. trauma, for example, stops the memory systems from working properly. And 
it's our job as health practitioners to have the tools to repair that sort of damage so the person can get their needs met. Mm-hmm. Now, what you say, Joe, is, is really, really powerful and very useful. And, and indeed, particularly, as you mentioned, no organization. So there, there, in terms of the of a, of a, um, a business or a, a conglomerate, and unless there is some sort of, um, uh, what would I call, correction at the top, because usually when, when it comes to these organizations, unless the, the, the top management believe in this, you know, because it's all petered down, down the, 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 the ranks, unless they believe it, then there is, a, there is an imbalance in the workplace. Yeah? You're, you're absolutely right. You're at nothing trying to change the culture in a workplace. If the uh-huh. people at the top do not buy into it and lead by example, because whatever healthy changes and skills you teach lower down the hierarchy in a workplace, the top people will totally undermine it and destroy mm. it if they themselves yeah. are operating in, in, in a toxic way from, from the bottom of the ladder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I have you know, uh, been around for quite a long time and working in companies and with people. And to me, mm. it is still extraordinary that companies and organizations can exist and they can have toxic management in them, causing stress and strain and burnout at all levels in their companies. Mm. And, you know, they're virtually unsupervised. And they're certainly very often uneducated about mental health. It's, mm. it's, it's incredible that this day and age that mm. can go on. But you mm-hmm. and I know, and all your fellow listeners who are practitioners know, you're continually meeting people who are being states of depression caused by bullying at work, for example, mm-hmm. by their control being taken away from, by, 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 mm-hmm. by being subject to ridicule and yeah. being threatened yeah. by job security. And then the bosses so, think that this will make them work better. It makes them stupid. When you threaten yeah. people's lower needs, they become stupid, not more productive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it it's fascinating. I mean, it's 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 really powerful stuff. Um, and if if only you know, let's say a, a, a small portion of what what you're saying here now was implemented, it would lead to a, a positive environment almost. Oh, it would lead to a hugely positive environment, uh, and we as a nation would become more intelligent, more productive, more creative. And and the funny part of it is, the companies would actually yeah. become more profitable. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Now, Joe, um, thank you for that. You have written a lot about dreams and you also talk about dreaming in your new book. Uh, so why do we dream, Joe, and what is the importance of dreaming? Thank you for that question, Aidan. I spent many years at the start of my career as a young postgraduate researcher investigating dreams. In fact, I spent over a decade doing it. And I formulated a theory based upon my research evidence as to what the function of dreaming was. I have to say that theory now after 30 years has been, a large part of it has now been accepted, but not all of it by the scientific community. But the scientific findings that come out during that 30 years have completely supported the theory I put forward. And the other theories that were around at the time have now fallen by the wayside for the most part. So the function of dreaming then, Aidan, is this. We get emotionally aroused during the day. Our needs are not being met and we want this to happen, we want that to happen and we form expectations about what might happen. Now sometimes those expectations are met and that's the end of it. Sometimes those expectations are not met. We're expecting somebody to give us a present and they don't, for example. 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes we will voice our feelings about the expectation not being met. And if we do that, there's an end to it. We have expressed our emotions. But in many situations, we do not express our emotions. We don't perhaps feel it's safe to, or the consequences wouldn't be good. So we hold back what our feelings are. And it is the feelings that we suppress during the daytime that get expressed in dreams. It's not the most emotional experience we have during the daytime, which one current theory says, which is absolutely wrong. It's not the most emotional experience. It is those emotional experiences that we have not expressed that get expressed in dreams. And they have to be expressed in metaphor, Aidan, because if they express them as, as if they happened, this would totally confuse memory and we'd be psychotic. So they're expressed mm. through pattern map as metaphors. And what that yeah. does is it switches off the emotional arousal and gives us a clean emotional slate to start the next day and act full access to our intelligence. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's almost like a housekeeping function. It's getting, it's getting rid of emotional arousals that we didn't act upon yesterday and it's cleaning them out so we can start afresh the next day. Mm-hmm. And you know, you, you, you said something there, you know, uh, because as therapists, we, 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 uh, a lot of therapists are tra- trained in psychodynamic work. Um, mm-hmm. where, where does that play into uh, the whole area of psych- psychodynamic, you know, where, where there's a belief that there's something happened in the past that is now causing me to be, you know, maladaptive or, or, or you know, not the way I perhaps perceive this, normally perceived as being um, normal, if you want to call it that. Where does that yeah. fit in there? Now, that's a fascinating question, Aidan. Now, firstly, firstly, let me say there are many wonderful psychodynamic therapists who build wonderful relationships with their clients or their, or their patients mm. and who succeed in helping them really well. So this is not to take anything away from psychodynamic therapists, but part of the understanding put forward by Freud was wrong. Freud taught mm. that we stored emotions from the past. We don't. The emotions are expressed in the dreams and they're that's the end of them. But the patterns are stored in the brain so that mm. the brain holds on to the pattern of the memory. So what can happen is that if we have a, a somewhat upsetting experience or traumatizing experience at one stage in our lives, mm. it can be dreamt out in our dreams, provided it's not too intense and doesn't trigger off PTSD. It can be dreamt, the emotion can be cleared out in our dreams, but the pattern is retained. And when that's pattern matched in life against a similar thing happens, the pattern match triggers off the emotional arousal, but it's brand new in the moment. The emotion okay. is always created in the moment. It is not stored from the past. It's the I pattern see. stored. Ah, yes, that's that important. It's not just about expressing the emotion to get the real lasting change. We've got to change the pattern. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you for that explanation. Now, Joe, you, you, uh, do you see a, a close connection between dreaming and hypnosis? Oh, I absolutely do, Aidan. I absolutely do. So once we realize that dreams are the acting out of suppressed emotions, that makes clear, and it's been physiologically demonstrated to be true as well, but that makes clear that dreaming, in dreaming, there's a theater and there's a script being acted out from waking, suppressed emotion, which is the dream. So the REM state in which dreaming occurs, dreaming proper occurs, is Mm -hmm. a type of theater. And that theater is actually, its first use is not in dreaming. It's actually used a lot by the baby uh, in, during gestation, where it's programmed with the patterns. It's actually programming goes on the REM state in the fetus. But anyway, what, 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 what hypnosis is, 
is accessing the theater of dreams. It's accessing the REM state in which the brain was originally programmed. So once you access that state, it's an incredibly powerful state, depending how deeply the person goes into it. And we can help a person change all kinds of attitudes. We can do amazing things, even to the body, stop blood flow, operations without blood, all kinds of things, because mm-hmm. we're actually accessing the programming state of the brain. And this explains why all this weird stuff can happen in hypnosis, Aiden. Like, you know, you see with stage hypnosis, seeing, getting people to see yeah. fairy, see things that are not there and all the rest of it. Uh-huh. Because it's the dreaming brain you're in. The dreams are, we, we can happily see fairies in our dreams. So you're in the mm-hmm. dreaming brain. <laughs> but it's yeah. also the programming brain, which gives tremendous power to hypnosis if it's used yeah. properly. Incredible power. Absolutely. Now, Joe, you you also from reading your book, uh, you you've done enormous work in the NHS in the UK, uh, and you've you've gone around or, or travelled probably thousands and thousands of miles miles around the UK teaching because I think you love teaching, and I think you're if I may say you're a wonderful, you're a great teacher, and that that I'm not <laughs> being patronising, but anyway. Um, uh, you've gone around the UK, you've spent thousands of miles traveling, as I say, and you 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 are actually teaching hypnosis techniques without actually calling it hypnosis is that correct yeah. absolutely right when i'd done my dream work i realized that hypnosis was the most powerful technique i also knew that people were afraid of it especially professionals and managers in the nhs uh-huh. i knew they desperately needed this technique if they're going to do effective brief therapy they needed yeah. hypnosis but i didn't call it hypnosis because they, yeah. they'd be terrified of it. So I called <laughs> hypnosis guided imagery, but it is yeah. hypnosis. Yeah, yeah. So you got and, around it that and, way. And, and they're all using it now happily, but they call it guided imagery, and most of them are quite ignorant of the fact that it's hypnosis, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's okay. what's in a name? But anyway, um, now, Joe, uh, thank you so much for that. There, There is a concept that you write about in your new book, and it's called APET, A-P-E-T, model. That's right. Now, does this model smash, just to perhaps refer back to what we said earlier, does this smash to smithereens both the cognitive model and the psychodynamic theories of brain functioning? It doesn't smash them to smithereens, but it puts in a corrective. Let me just briefly take you through it. Apet or apet, depending on what country you're from. Yeah, indeed. (laughs) They pronounce it differently. But anyway, the A stands for activating agent. There's a stimulus, some stimulus is coming into the brain. Your mother comes into the room. She's the app. She's the stimulus. And as soon as the stimulus comes into the brain, the next thing that the brain does, it calls up from memory a pattern match to find out what it is. For mm. example, I have a plastic glass in front of me with some mineral water in it. Mm. Now, I could not see that plastic glass if my brain didn't have stored a pattern for a plastic glass. Excellent. So yeah. The brain works by pattern matching. The, if I'd never seen a pattern for a plastic glass, my brain might be on some incredible search to find out what kind of glass? Have I ever seen anything like that before? Or, or, or maybe there was a see-through rock on the beach once with water and it looked a bit like a plastic, but, but, but that joke, maybe that's what it is. So the brain works through pattern matching in the first instance. And once it's pattern matched, it then knows what the significance of the thing is because it has emotional experiences with it of some sort. Mm-hmm. So the pattern match triggers off some form of emotional arousal. And only after the emotional arousal does thought enter the picture. Thought is way down the sequence. So emotional arousal triggers thought. Now, here's the really fascinating thing, I think, is that 
we wonder why people say things and think things that they do. Hmm. And the reason is quite simple is thought is the servant. I'd go so far as to say the prisoner. Thought is the prisoner of emotion. It's emotions that tell the thoughts what the result that it wants. Why are people having these emotions? Because some needs are not being met. But it's the emotional arousal. So you're not nothing trying to understand why people hold certain ridiculous forms of thought by using logic with them. Because it's nothing got to do with logic. It's the emotions that are driving these distorted thought patterns. Mm-hmm. So thought is subsequent to emotion. Now, if you, for example, let's say the emotion is a result of a pattern match to a trauma in the past. And the person has all this distorted thinking about the dangers of mice, for example. Your cognitive therapist is trying to get them to think thoughts that would challenge the, challenge the fact that mice are dangerous. And they can do that. And they're doing it for an awful long time before they'll change anything. Because the problem is the pattern in the emotional brain that said mm. mice are dangerous once. It's the pattern that needs to be accessed. So as for cognitive therapy, a lot of the time it's dealing at the wrong level in the brain. Psychodynamic therapy needs to bring the correction that it's not the emotion per se, but the pattern underlying the emotion that needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. So and neither of them the are wholly wrong, but neither of them are wholly right. <laughs> <laughs> and this correction of the pattern matching, and of course, it's all motivated from not having our needs met, as you said. This pattern matching is, is something that is corrected during the therapy. Yes. In good therapy, oh. that's what happens. Mm. Absolutely. Excellent. Thank you for that, Joe. Now, your new book, what's the title of your book? Maybe you give us the title of your book. Oh, thank you. It's titled A Universe That Dreams and subtitled in Waking to Universal Reality. Wonderful. No, okay. In this new book... I may as well add. I beg your pardon? I may as well add that if any of your readers get interested enough to want to buy it on your listeners, the book can be bought on Amazon. Excellent, excellent. I I read it, I read it twice, but uh, and I found it a great read. Um, It's challenging, you know, it's, I highly recommend it. But... um, Your new book, as I say, uh, A Universe That Dreams, contains many practical tools and advice that help our patients and clients and indeed ourselves to live better lives. But you also recount many mystical experiences that you have had. But one in particular changed your life forever. It helped you move from being a convinced atheist to being being convinced that, that human consciousness is intimately involved with the manifestation of the universe itself. Now, can you tell us about that experience, Joe? Well, I'd be very happy to, Aidan. But let me just preface my answer by saying, you would be amazed if, you know, by the number of people who have mystical experiences. Part of our culture is we're not supposed to talk about them, although I think mm. the Irish are a bit more comfortable about talking about this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. But a lot of cultures aren't, this, particularly you know, if they're in management or academic, they don't want to admit to the fact have very significant, maybe 70% of people have mystical experiences. Even if it's only to to be walking in a wood with sunlight and somehow getting a sense that they're part of something bigger and their mind expanding, that's a mystical experience. So mystical experiences are not uncommon. And many of your, I'm quite certain, many of the people listening to this will have had mystical experiences. But I want to tell you, answer your question, I'll tell you about the specific one that you referred to that changed my life utterly forever. I was about 42 years of age at the time. I was a convinced atheist. I had long since abandoned the Catholic religion in which I was brought up. And, but I had become interested to know if consciousness could survive death because I was so shocked by the sudden death of my father. I had been mm-hmm. doing a bit of meditating and stuff like that. And uh, 
but not following any religion. But one day, uh, one day I went to the park with my young daughter to take, give her a go on the swings. The park was opposite our house in London, in West London. Mm. And this was a very difficult time financially for us because whilst I was doing my research at university, the grant money had long since run out and I was still investigating and researching dreams. So what I'd started doing was doing a little property development business, doing up apartments and houses and getting people to do them up and selling them. And it had mm. gone very, very nicely. And for like two works, two hours work a day, I could spend the rest of the day in at the university researching. But then the property crash came overnight. Yeah. It was a property crash. Mm-hmm. Shares collapsed. It was called Black Monday. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the properties, the few properties that I held became worth a fraction of what they were worth. And the bank and that was loans out against them. So mm-hmm. we were in a terrible, dire situation. So anyway, as I went to the park that morning with my young daughter, give her go on the swings, I bought a book about meditation and Eastern philosophy with me to look at. And while she was going up and down the swings, I read a passage in the book. And it struck me deeply. I, don't, I can't say it other than that. It struck me very deeply in my psyche. And I found myself expressing the thought, Lord, whatever is about to happen now, I know we're facing catastrophe, economic catastrophe. We're going to lose our home in all probability mm-hmm. and lose our work means of a livelihood. But Lord, whatever happens now, I accept it as your will. And I will do my best to live my life as best I can and to obey your will in all matters. Mm-hmm. Words to that effect. And I suddenly felt a hot spot in the back of my hand, as if the sun was shining very hard on my hand. I thought, wow, what's that going on? And I slid the book over the hot spot, and I still felt really hot. And somehow I knew it was significant. So I went back to the house with my daughter, and I started meditating. And when I meditated, my whole consciousness changed. And I suddenly found that I was no longer a human being, but I was this gigantic donut shape, Taurus, Taurus shape, technically mm. called donut shape. And I was this Taurus shape. I also knew beyond any doubt that everything that ever was or ever would be was within me, this Taurus shape. I also knew that I was eternal. I could never be born and I could never die. I knew that everything that would ever happen or had ever happened, was encoded within this Taurus shape that was me. Mm-hmm. So this was a, an amazing experience to be having. It yeah. went on for some time. It went on for some mm-hmm. time. At first, I was very content, you know, knowing I was never going to die. I didn't, I didn't have to be frightened of anything. Whatever happened was inside me, and, mm-hmm. I, and I must be projecting it. So I felt safe and secure. I thought it was nice. But after a while, I began to think, you know, where's the excitement? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is enlightening. And I'm going to be doing this forever, you know. Where's the love? Where's the passion? Yeah. So I asked this question. And then the Taurus shape changed. And suddenly I wasn't the Taurus shape anymore. I was a tiny little dot of pure awareness located somewhere in my midriff. And that dot just said, I am. I am. Mm. And it was intensely aware of itself. And then in front of me appeared this ball about the size of a football. And it had patterns in it. And I found myself being absorbed by the football and seeing that the patterns could all connect up to make a perfect unity. And as soon as I saw that, the ball disappeared. Mm. And I came back to being a little dot over the knowledge that I had been that ball, which I now know to be the universe, and that it was the most beautiful thing. It was a unity and beautiful. And I felt bliss. But the ball had disappeared. 
mm-hmm. then the next thing, another ball appeared. And same process. I became part of it, came back to myself, feeling bliss. And that went on. I was subsequently to, to, to understand that this is the universe being projected by this torus of awareness, moment by moment. And that the ancient religions had written all about it. And that I had somehow accessed yeah. this state. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fascinating story um, and an experience, I'm sure. Um, that just to, on, on the bones of that, uh, Joe, if I may, um, there's a theme of acceptance and detachment, which for somehow it resonates with me. Would you maybe comment on that, that this acceptance and detachment? I will, I, I, I will, Aidan, because quite honestly, it's the most important self-development tool that we have. It's the most mm-hmm. important tool for our own spiritual development. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is the key to everything. And in a way, it's the opposite of all this manifestation stuff that's going on. And what mm-hmm. the detachment t- t- tool is, it says that if we are to grow and mature and self-develop, when we get expectations, we have expectations, we all must have them, They're go- expectations are goals, things that we think are going to happen. Mm. And if those expectations are under our control and we can make them happen, great. But when those expectations are not under our control and things are not working out the way that we would like them to work out, the most beneficial thing that we can do at that point is to detach, separate ourselves from our emotions, separate ourselves from those expectations and stand back and say, as I did in the park, whatever happens, I will accept it. Mm. I will accept mm-hmm. whatever happens. Mm-hmm. Don't try and control anymore because it's not under your control. And it isn't detaching from the expectations and accepting the future that the best results in your life will come. Because mm-hmm. there's something about detaching from those expectations that makes it much more likely that they will actually manifest. Because mm-hmm. everything in the world is connected, including all consciousnesses are connected. And when we stop driving our agenda, other people's consciousness that are connected to the fulfillment of our expectations feel, mm-hmm. feel less unconsciously manipulated and controlled. And they are more likely to cooperate with us rather mm-hmm. than work against us. And it's in detachment from our... Because, see, basically, Aidan, we're all God. We are all that universal torus of awareness. Every one of us, we are God at a certain level of reality. We are the universe. But we are trapped in a view of ourselves that's only a tiny portion of reality. And it's in the detachment, the letting go, that we can embrace a bigger vision of reality. And that's why we're on this planet, is to continually transcend, to continually grow, to develop a wider circle of awareness and compassion. Mm-hmm. And that's what all our sufferings give us the opportunity of developing a wider circle of compassion and awareness. Mm-hmm. We cannot evolve spiritually without suffering. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's all to do about you know it 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 def, definitely puts puts things into perspective in that you know puts problems into perspective in terms of you know um, just transcending that and as you say you know, accept it, but. Detach yourself from it, and that—that's something, Joe. I presume it, it takes practice, doesn't it? Everything in this life that's of any value in involves skills. Everything involves skills. How, yeah. to, how to have an intelligent conversation involves skills. 
yeah. how to have a good interaction in a shop in five skills. And detachment is a set of tools or skills that we have to learn. Now, we will mm. learn the painful suffering unless we get interested in detachment and learn them without mm. having to go through the suffering first, as it were. Yeah. But yeah, it takes, it, 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 it takes skills. For example, one of the skills could be to realize that these seven needs that I mentioned, that yeah. when we are getting emotionally aroused, the chances are it's because of our security is threatened, our control is threatened, or our status is threatened. If we could just take a step back and see this is my need for control, we're fighting with our child because the child wants their way and we want our way. If you take a step back, this is my need for control. But my child also has a need for control. Suddenly we're seeing a bigger picture. We're detaching. And that enables us to see a bigger picture. And then we can look and see what would be the best way for the child to get their need for control. And do I actually need control right now in this moment or this child's life? We can learn to mm. compromise. But we can only do this kind of things if we learn to detach. Mm. I mean, when I first start, um, I don't know if, for you, for, if this was for you true as well, Aidan. The big message that was going out was, oh, we must all be emotional. Men are not emotional enough. We've got to let the mm. feelings out. Oh, he's a great guy. Oh, he cries. He's a great guy. This was a, you know, a bit of a disastrous message. We don't need to become more emotional. We need to become more intelligent. We need to be able to step back in order to get the right emotions and the right level of emotions, not just mm. give vent any old... Uh, emotion that's actually more animal-like than human. Mm. So who says, Joe, that we're at the right level of emotion, if that doesn't sound like a silly question? Emotions are there to help us get our needs met. No doubt mm. about that. We get emotion when our, when our needs are threatened. So what, 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 what is the right level of emotion? Mm. Well, what we need is to be able to, in a situation, you know, most of the time the emotions are fine. We feel irritated by somebody doing something and we say something and they, and they say sorry or whatever and it's grand. Mm. But when our emotions are disproportionate to the triggering event, then something is wrong. If we lose our temper with a shop assistant who's been on the stress all morning trying to serve customer after customer and they've held mm. us up for one minute, next thing we're shouting and raving at them. That mm. level of anger is disproportionate. Yeah. I'm sure you'll yeah, agree. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, so there's something it, wrong there. There's something wrong yeah. with us. So we yeah. need to learn to be able to monitor our own stress levels and how to relax ourselves and stay calm, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So the level of emotion that prevents other people from getting their needs met is, disp is, is too much. Okay. Thank you for that explanation. Um, I think I think it was important just to for me to ask that question for me anyway. Um, now, you you tell uh, just touching again on your mystical experience over the years. Now, but you had an experience, a mystical experience, eight years ago in Waterville in County Kerry, and that mystical experience is responsible for your new book. Can you tell yeah. us about that? Absolutely is in. Who would have thought Waterford and Country? I have to say, I think it's one of the most beautiful spots on earth. Mm. But anyway, Waterville. But uh, one morning I'd gone for a walk on the beach in Waterville and I came back to my house. And I didn't know if I slipped into a sleep state or something. But suddenly I was aware that there were people standing to my side. And a voice spoke to me. And the voice said, We have given you the tool to help you save the planet. So, what's going on here? I said, what tool? And I was handed mm. in this, I call it a vision or waking dream, 
an object that was clearly a miniature version of the transcendent boundary, the torus of awareness that I told you about. Mm-hmm. And when I held this object, I could see there was lines of writing in it. And if I asked a question, provided the object was oriented correctly, the answer to the question would shoot out in a line of writing. And so I realized that this vice was telling me that I hadn't properly digested and understood the experience that had been given me all those years earlier in the park in London. And yeah. I hadn't properly thought about it. But that if I spend the next eight years and all my spare moments thinking about that experience and asking questions of it, and the book is the, are the lines of writing that shot out of the torus of awareness, so to speak, in answering my questions. So, yeah, that experience enabled me for the first time in my life to be able to formulate a way of understanding what the universe is, how it works, does, does God exist, what happens after death. I got the answers to all these questions by asking Taurus of awareness correctly mm-hmm. in the right way about those questions. You got many answers indeed. And, and uh, what answers, for example, um, the important question, like, for example, uh, who am I? What happens after death, as you said? Does life have meaning? What, why yeah. Why does evil exist? You know, do we have free yeah. will? And how does all of that, all of this um, connect up with saving the planet, Joe? Yeah. Well, let's just, just, let's just take the question, does evil exist? Traditional religions yeah. can't explain the presence of evil. And people are, can often lose their faith because of terrible things that happen unjustly to people. And mm. atheists, for the most part, one of the, the big stumbling blocks for them for believing there's anything beyond death is, so there can't be anything loving beyond death. It could, you know, there can't be a loving God. He would never create a world full of such evil. He'd have to be a monster. Mm. And it's a perfectly legitimate thing to be thinking. So, but what the Taurus of Awareness showed me was that the reason evil exists is because the universe, all that exists is the universe manifesting itself in eternity mm-hmm. forever. The reason evil exists is because the laws of the universe have to apply at every level of the universe. And the second law of thermodynamics that destroys order also causes bad things to happen to good people and endless suffering to exist. But they cannot not exist because these are the laws of the cosmos, the laws of the universe. But they, in a way, serve a purpose because the bad things that happen to us can give us the motivation to develop ourselves and to transcend that suffering and to detach. So so-called evil is also the vehicle for our self-development. But there is no God deliberately creating that evil. There, as you know, traditional views of, of God outside just creating a world full of suffering and evil, there is no God creating the world. But there is, if you want to call the Taurus of awareness that has always existed, God, you can. But it's not God is conventionally defined. This is something that has always existed. It cannot not exist. And it works by the laws of nature. Now, this torus of awareness can't change anything. It has everything that ever happened and everything that will ever happen is encoded within it. This is a process, cosmic process. It can't change them. It's just how it is. So evil is a result of the laws of nature. But we can benefit from them, the sufferings that we, that we personally encounter and, and grow and develop. That's, that's the reason why, why, why evil exists. Uh, is, is, does free will exist? Now, that's a really fascinating question because free will exists 
but not in the way most people understand it. We think free will is the, is, 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 is the ability to do anything on a whim. But if we do something on a whim, is that free will? Is that, or is it the result of the adversities we saw on television last night? Is it the result mm. of conditioning we had in our childhood? Mm. Is it the result of the genetic inheritance? Who is deciding or what is deciding? No, mm-hmm. real free will has to be decided by us. Now, who we are was, was and is encoded in the torus of awareness in eternity. And what we will do in our life is already predetermined. But nobody's making us do it. This is who we are. We are, we will make the choices that are encoded because this is who we are. So free will and determinism are one and the same thing because determinism is self-determinism. It is you. You will do the behaviors that constitute your essence. And you will continue doing them and gradually you will learn and eventually you will become God or you will become the eternal truth yourself. So is there an element, Joe, of active participation, cooperation? In what way, well, you know, free will and, you know, that, that and unless we cooperate with, with uh, the, the, the Taurus and, and the, the yeah. um, out there, um, yeah. unless we cooperate with that, how will that become manifest? Well, you see, we will choose what it is. We are the totality of our existence, the totality, not this moment, but the totality of past and future. And mm. we will make choices. Because that is who we are. Those choices, the Taurus is always acceptable of them because in every moment the universe is a unity. But eventually those choices that we make, we have to learn to be able to make better choices because the choices have consequences and we suffer. So yes, we learn to cooperate. We learn to grow as human beings. And there is a growth process. That too is determined. But it's there mm-hmm. for everybody. Everybody will eventually grow. Excellent. And reach their uh, destiny. Your theory, all Joe, your theory also says that um, in order for the universe to exist, a universal human is necessary. Can you develop that point for us? That's, that's an amazing concept. Far from human beings being some accident of evolution, the universe needs humans. It cannot even come into existence without the equivalent of human consciousness performing a certain function in the manifestation of the universe. Now, this has been described many times in the, in the mystical and, uh, and spiritual literature in all religions, including Sufism, for example. And it's described very explicitly. In, in, in Sufism, it says that the universal human is the isthmus, which means a bridge between God and mm-hmm. the world. God and man. Mm-hmm. And what the universal human has to do is, in the Taurus of awareness, which by the way is totally analogous to an elementary particle, an elementary particle is both a wave which extends across the universe and a tiny little particle, and it's both things simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So the Taurus of awareness is the wave of the universe. And the particle is the I am consciousness. So it is just the bigger version, if you like, of what an elementary particle is. So this concept has been completely validated in physics. Mm. Mm-hmm. So uh, where are we going with this, Aidan? <laughs> no, I was just, I was just, you know, because I, I was always fascinated by 
for example, the work of Niels Bohr in terms of that a, a particle, can, it's only by, by virtue of the fact that we observe it, uh, you yeah. know, does, does it actually exist? Am I correct so, in saying that? Oh, thank you. You saved my life. <laughs> that is exactly it. In the experiment in physics, whether yeah. we see a particle or a wave depends how we observe it. If we set up the experiment for it to manifest as yeah. a wave, it manifests as a wave. Mm-hmm. If we set up the experiment for us to observe it as a particle, it manifests as a particle. So in order for the wave to manifest as a particle for the universe to exist, so somebody has got to ask the question, set up the experiment. So when I was in the when I was the Taurus of awareness, and when I asked the question, where is the passion? I was asking the question that Niels Bohr was doing with the elementary particle. You know, is this a particle? I'm asking, where is the passion? And then I become the particle and project mm. the universe and what becomes the passion. So mm-hmm. there, there needs the equivalent of a human consciousness that has at least temporarily freed itself from the human tiny little consciousness to become universal consciousness, universal man, as it's called. And that person is needed to bridge the two manifestations of ultimate reality, namely the wave that is the torus of awareness and the particle, just as mm. in the physics experiments. It's the same process. Excellent. A human consciousness is necessary. So, so Joe, are you saying that uh, the purpose of life then is to turn us all into human, uh, into universal humans? Yes, Aidan, absolutely. This is the most wonderful, positive message a human being could ever hear. You are destined for eternal happiness, beyond any shadow of a doubt. You are on a journey to becoming the universal human and to ultimately one day residing in the Godhead and being the Godhead yourself. You are destined for eternal happiness. Mm. Good. Yes. Good. Excellent. So, um, one final question, Joe, and thank you so much for, for this today. How do we practice self-development? Wow, what a, what, a, what, 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 what a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful question. And self, the opportunity for self-development arises at the point where our needs are not being met, where we are feeling some of the primitive emotions that do with security, control, or status. It is at a point where we are feeling challenged. Now, we can either totally give in to the emotion or we can learn the detachment tools and just take a step back and say, what's going on for the other person here that I'm getting frustrated with and see their needs and look to see, is there a better solution than just charging at them emotionally? So the opportunity for self-development and self-growth arises when our needs are not being met and how we handle that subsequently. That's the opportunity. Excellent. That's a wonderful opportunity and that's a challenge for us all to go out there and buy this book, uh, A Universe That Dreams. And thank you so much. That was Joe Griffin, who is co-founder of the Human Given School of Psychotherapy. Joe, thank you. Thank you, Aidan. It's a real pleasure talking to you. You have been listening to the Professional Hypnotherapist Podcast, a production of the European Association of Professional Hypnotherapists. That's eaph.ie. Why not pop over to eaph.ie and find solutions for you there where many of our members are waiting to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Aidan Noon. Bye bye for now.